On this episode of This Week in Linux, the Raspberry Pi Foundation announces a new 8GB RAM version of the Raspberry Pi. And there's also a new release of the Kali Linux distribution that we're going to take a look at. We've also got some big updates for two audio editors in Ardor 6.0 and Audacity 2.4.1. We've got a new version of the Enlightenment Window Manager, well, Window Environment, I suppose, with 0.24 version, we need to talk about that version number later, and a new tool for making bootable USBs called Ventoy. We've got an update for the GNOME Patent Troll case, Patent Troll in my opinion. It's now been resolved, that's the update, so we'll get more in details in that later. EA is releasing source code for two Command & Conquer games. And Microsoft is back in the news with two new topics this week. One shows they may be really changing announcing DirectX for Linux. I'm kidding, yeah, not really. Of course there's a catch to this. It's Microsoft. Also, Microsoft figured that pretending to be releasing something that we want is not good enough, so they decided to create a name collision with the Maui project. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. Before we get started, I'll let you know we have new merch in the Destination Linux Network store, such as the new Destination Linux logo shirt, as well as the new Active Sitting Stool shirt. If you're not familiar with the Active Sitting Stool thing is, it's based on an episode of Destination Linux, well, actually many episodes because it became a monster, but uh, on episode 152 of Destination Linux, it was, uh, well, it was pretty ridiculous and it's hard to explain. So go check that out, destinationlinux.org slash stool for more information about why this is even a thing. And I'm just going to be leaning into the trolls, uh, well, trolls from Ryan and Noah and actually a lot of people now. So I'm just going to lean into it and we're going to do the active sitting shirt because it's not only just a stool shirt, it's to promote the active sitting and the reason I got the stool or the reason I came up with after the fact. Anyway, just check out that episode to learn what this is about. Uh, you can also check out the new Destination Linux logo shirt as well as the new Destination Linux logo mug that we've done. It's a new logo for the podcast, so check that out. We've also got some stuff for the Tux Digital channel. So if you'd like to get a Tux Digital shirt, you can now get one of those at the destinationlinux.network slash store. You can also get a, sh a shirt for this show. The This Week in Linux shirt is now available. So if you want to check it out, that we'll have that link in the show notes. But just for the audio people, if you want to go, it's destinationlinux.network slash store. Up first in the show this week is some awesome news from the Raspberry Pi Foundation. So the Raspberry Pi Foundation has announced that there is a new version of the Raspberry Pi 4, and this edition has 8 gigs of RAM. That's right, 8 gigs of RAM on a Raspberry Pi. This is ridiculous. This is launching at $75 USD, for, and it's, it's available immediately. So if you want to check it out, I have a link in the show notes. But this is very cool. And they say that it's technically possible to have up to 16 gigabytes of RAM on the, the, the system on a chip that's used in the Raspberry Pi 4. However, it's not a, there's, they don't know if they're going to be making one because it, it depends on it. It means a manufacturer needs to make a 16 gigabyte RAM option for them to implement in the hardware. Uh, currently, they said that in 2019 there wasn't an option, but thanks to the, their partners at Micron, they stepped up early this year and created a part to make it possible to get that 8 gigabytes of RAM. So that is awesome. And they say also in order to cope with the higher power demands of the new memory, which you might have heard that there was some power issues or some overheating in previous editions 
of the Raspberry Pi, specifically the four. So what that would assume that'd be more heating issues with the eight. They have addressed this as much as possible by saying that they have changed the board slightly with a switch mode power supply removed and a new switcher added next to the USB-C power connector. And they've also said that the updated hardware pumped out quite a bit of more heat than earlier models, making a fan or chunkier passive cooling essential basically when the thing is under load. So a succession of firmware updates have gone some way to addressing the thermal issues, although Upton had told that the he told the register that he thinks that the, the they were probably at the limits of what could be done in terms of further reducing thermal output of the Pi, at least in the short term. So you may want to check into getting a case that has a heat sink into it, built into it, or a fan or something like that. I'm pretty sure the Flirk case, which by the way looks amazing, it looks like a really high-end case. It's not that expensive either, but it looks like a solid like metal type case. It's pretty cool looking. And, I've, and it comes with a heat sink. I don't know if it comes with a fan, but I'm pretty sure it does come with a heat so maybe that will be helpful in terms of some dissipation of the overall heat but i don't know for sure check into it you might need to get some kind of fan system or a passive more passive cooling if you're going to go for the high eight gigabytes of ram it is really cool but you might need to check into that just so you know uh, I think it's really awesome that they're even doing this because I never even considered it when they first announced it and had like, uh, it was, no, not 512, it was 256 megabytes of RAM on the first one. Then they upgraded it to 512, and I thought that was kind of crazy. Now they're at 8 gigs of RAM. So this is awesome, and I look forward to trying it. I'm going to have to find, you know, one in stock, but I look forward to trying it out. Uh, also, they have made some updates to the Raspberry Pi OS. They've actually changed it from Raspbian to Raspberry Pi OS, and this is still using Debian as the base, but they've changed the name for this latest release. And they also say that the default operating system uses 32-bit LPAE kernel and a 32-bit user LAN, and this allows uh, for multiple processes to share all of the 8 gigabytes of memory, but there is a restriction that no one single process could use any more than three gigabytes. That's just an issue of 32-bit in general. So if you want to use up to all of the eight gigabytes of RAM in the address space of a single process, then you need to get a 64-bit user LAN. And the latest version of Raspberry Pi OS will have that, but it's currently in beta right now. So the 64-bit version is still in beta. So there might not be an issue, not be available there yet because we don't know exactly when it's going to be released as far as like the stable version. But if you want to get started already, you can use Ubuntu because there is an Ubuntu ISO that has that option. And I think there are many other ones. So just check out to see if it has 64-bit support. And there's also Debian. You can go direct Debian with with ARM64 support. And I'm not sure how valuable the difference between the Raspbian or Raspberry Pi OS now and the Debian version. So check that out. But I actually do think it's good for the Raspberry Pi to change the OS from Raspbian to Raspberry Pi OS because it seems more official now. So that's probably, that's a good decision in my opinion. Uh, but anyway, if you want to check out the new cool eight gigabytes of RAM version of the Raspberry Pi, then I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release 6.0 of our door. So if you're not familiar, Ardor is a full-featured audio mixer and editor with unlimited tracks, patching and routing, video sync for soundtracks, plug-in support, automation via Lua scripting, and non-destructive editing, which is a fundamental piece of any kind of editor, no matter what, if it's video, audio, image editing, or whatever. If, it has, if it's an editor, 
and it's a more specifically something that's not text-based, but anything else, and it's not non-destructive, then that is a problem and they need to correct it quickly because with non-destructive editing, you can go back at any time and make modifications without affecting anything negatively after the modification. So that is a fundamental piece that every editor should have. Not all of them do, but they all should have because it is a very important piece. And I will get off my soapbox right now because I've mentioned this before on other topics in the past. So yeah, non-destructive editing, awesome. All of that is available in our door anyway, but with 6.0, there's a lot of new stuff. There's a lot of new features, and we'll just go for the really big stuff right now. We're not going to cover everything because there's just a ton of things, although we still are going to cover a lot because this is really cool. So first of all, there's now full latency compensation, so that alignment of various signals routed through our door is precise. They've actually added global very speed, which is a new resampling engine. The previous versions of Ardor had very speed, but it was doing it through specific DSPs. And Ardor 6.0 now contains a high-quality resampling engine at its core to deal with very speed. This design makes the core of Ardor's code much simpler and ensures that MIDI tracks will have their audio output handled correctly. We also have some updates with Q monitoring has been added. So this allows you to have simultaneous monitoring of output and input. So our door 6.0 provides this now this provides this ability to monitor any combination, often called Q monitoring. You can do this with like listening to the content while that you've already recorded while making new recordings. So this is like useful for MIDI tracks where you can now hear yourself performing and adding new material to a track while also listening to the playback of the existing material in that track. Very, very cool. They've also added wet recording, which the 6.0 allows you to record from any position in a channel signal flow, which is like the ability to add sound effect processing to a track while recording. They've also made some modifications to their grid system. So the grid has been separated into two separate features, snap and grid, for a more consistent what you see is what you get style of operation. And they've done a lot of new stuff for the plugins. So they have a new pin management system so that it supports the ability for arbitrary connections between plugins, allowing for, the, for you to be able to manage the number of instances of a plugin so you can have multiple instances, splitting a, a signal to feed multiple inputs of a plugin, and exposing the sidechain inputs of audio unit plugins. It also does plugins the ability to have plugins being tagged with metadata, this, uh, this allows categorization of plugins. You can have tags that have already been applied to like 2,000 of the existing plugins, so many users will find sensible categories available with this newest release. They've also overhauled the layout, so it's a lot more friendly or friendlier in general to like user experience, and they've done some improvements to the searching and filtering of the plugins. So they've added some new support for ARM, so official ARM binaries for 32-bit and 64-bit builds of, for Linux are now available. Uh, in addition to uh, NetBSD, FreeBSD, and OpenSolaris has also been added. They have support for this experimental, but it's like a web browser control surface so that you can use WebSocket and JSON data streams in order to uh, manipulate your Ardor platform or pro program, which is really interesting because it allows you to have um, a variety of different va values. For example, you could do bots. So you could automatically do things based on how a bot like interacts with it. So you can use WebSockets to implement that kind of thing. A variety of different other things if you wanted to just use the web interface for some reason. But you can do a lot more with WebSockets. 
they also have made new support for audio formats. Specifically, FLAC is now an option for Ardor's native recording format. It used to not be because of the technically not lossy, but because it had some issues uh, in terms of like the algorithm compression. It still makes it, it's, it's lossless, but it doesn't have, it has a little bit of performance overhead because of the compression piece, whereas like Wave doesn't have compression. So with... Uh, it was sometimes better for that, but they've added FLAC now to, you know, add the, the ability for people who want to use FLAC to be able to do that, which is really cool because FLAC is a really cool thing because you can choose, like if you have lower amount of storage space, you can use FLAC instead of Wave because Wave is gigantic, like 80% more, or yeah, it's like one gigabyte of data in Wave can be uh, 250 megabytes in FLAC. So all kinds of stuff. And also, it has added support for MP3 format, and this allows you to have import and export that's now fully supported. The developers were formerly opposed to adding MP3 because of its lossy format, but there was a lot of community requests to be able to use MP3, so that's very nice for them to list the community. That is, that's really cool. So there's a lot more stuff in these latest release of Ardor. It's really hard to go through the rest of it. There's just so much of it, so I'm just going to end it right there. If you'd like to learn more about Ardor 6.0, I'll have a link to the, to, the in, to the release notes in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Audacity 2.4.1. So if one editor is not enough, we have another audio editor to check out, and that is Audacity 2.4.1. This has been released with a bunch of new features as well. So they have this new time toolbar. So the audio time position has been removed from the selection toolbar and turned into a new toolbar called the time toolbar, which is read only and displays the current audio position. So this is actually really interesting because it allows you to uh, really fle be flexible on the size of the time toolbar. So you can double the height toolbar, you can resize it, you, know, you can actually undock it from the system. So you can like full, you know, basically make it ridiculously large if you want to do that. So that, for example, if you were recording an instrument and you were playing it farther back from the computer screen and the keyboard, then you can normally be able to see it. You can re like resize it to big enough where you can actually see it. And you can, well, by undocking it, you can take it where you're not affecting the rest of the application, just the time toolbar piece in order to resize that. So basically, no matter where, how far away you are sitting, you can use this a lot easier to, you know, tell in the recording where you are. So that is very cool. They've also made some improvements to the, the, the being able to view the audio in different modes. So they have made a multi-view option where this new mode allows you to see the waveform and the spectrogram at the same time. So previously you had to switch back and forth between which one you wanted to use, and now you can use them both at the same time. You may be wondering, what is the value of having both of them? Uh, so they added this feature because spectrograms and waveforms have different strength and their strengths and weaknesses. So waveforms, for example, show you the overall loudness, and they show you the, that that's the best way, one of the best things to use it for. You might see the danger of Im imminent clipping. Uh, uh, precision in cutting and splicing is also best performed in waveform, and I completely agree with that. Uh, spectrograms is not something I'm super familiar with because it bases it's using it on frequencies. So in vocals, for example, you can see how vowel sounds change over time, and the onset of new sounds with another sound is playing often shows up more clearly in a spectrogram. I need to try out spectrograms more often to see if I can see them the op during this podcast, for example. So like I already have a thing to avoid clipping and that, that kind of stuff, but 
spectrograms seems like a very cool feature that I should probably implement. So also, the users can switch and choose whichever one gives the best information for the task at hand or use them both at the same time. Very cool. They've also added some new effects in Audacity. So there's a new loudness normalization, which normalizes the loudness, as you could imagine. And they'd also have added a new noise gate. So if you're not familiar with noise gate, it allows you to uh, control the level of sound where it basically stops the audio from being pulled in. So it's like a threshold. So you can be, you know, set a, spec a specified threshold and anything below that level is not picked up by the microphone. It's very, very important for a lot of th things. So it can block out um, atmospheric noise and it can block out like when you're typing on a keyboard and that sort of stuff. It's very good. So really cool that they've added that. They've actually added the ability to scrub the timeline with the keyboard now, and they have added Opus as an export option for when you're saving your files. So lots of cool stuff. And just a side bonus note, there was a thing on Reddit talking about a dark theme that's available for Audacity, which makes it a lot cleaner and a lot nicer. I'll have a link to the show notes for the the both the release notes for the latest version of Audacity and also a link to the Audacity clean dark theme because it looks a lot cleaner than the dark mode that comes with Audacity. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the Audacity default dark theme is not ideal because certain things don't look right, whereas you like have the icons are also dark sometimes and the text is sometimes dark or sometimes the background doesn't change properly or any, something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's fine for the most part, but here and there, there's some issues. So I think this theme fixes most of that. And yeah, it also looks a lot better. So there's that too. Maybe Audacity could consider in, including that. Just a thought. Anyway, if you'd like to check out the latest release of Audacity, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below, as well as a link to the uh, dark theme that is available on DeviantArt, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I have a link to it in the show notes, wherever it is. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Also, DigitalOcean now offers a virtual private cloud or VPC in all regions free of charge. This lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads. In addition to this, they also have the container registry, which is now available. This is a early availability release, so it's in the beta. It's technically not beta, but, you know, early availability. Uh, but this allows you to easily store and manage private container images and push images seamlessly to DigitalOcean's Kubernetes. DigitalOcean also has a new trust platform where you can find answers to common security and privacy questions and download available security certifications. Certification? Certifications. That's the way you say that word. Bam, nailed it. First try. Also in DigitalOcean, there are new updates to their marketplace where they have added the ability to easily set up and install a droplet with Jitsi, the web conferencing and it's open source web conferencing and Zoom alternative. Also, you can do it with a Minecraft server now, which is really cool. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. 
And you can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can start on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit, which is crazy. So you can try out all kinds of different droplets, or you can drive out you know, a couple months of these gigantically beast droplets if you want to by going to do.co slash DLN. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is Enlightenment 0.24 has been released. So for those who have watched multiple episodes of this show, you might have seen that I have made a couple mentions of people using the zero versioning system where it's zero point whatever. This may or may not imply beta use or beta versions on some applications. Most of the time, it does actually mean that. But for some reason, many projects decided to just stick with zero point whatever for no apparent reason whatsoever. Especially considering like Enlightenment 0.24 is also called E24. So you could just take the zero off completely and just say that's the version, right? Anyway, it implies beta. It's not beta because Enlightenment, maybe it is. Maybe they do consider it beta. I don't, but still. Enlightenment was first launched in 1990s. So in the 1990s, you should consider changing it to not be zero point whatever, because people do consider that to be beta. So you might get more users if they didn't think it was a beta release. Just food for thought. That's it. Anyway, so 0.24 has been released, and this has significant updates to the way the, the, the window manager and the Wayland compositor works. So this has actually been about nine months since the last feature release, and this has beta, a better screenshot module, uh, there's external mon monitor backlight and brightness controls added, uh, new and improved crash handling, uh, mo music control auto runs, so it runs with your selected media player, and it has the uh, ability to handle exceptions for Steam games to find the right desktop file. Uh, Poll kit now has auth agent support, so this is a new core module, and uh, easier uh, config of specific desktop wallpaper straight from the pager system. They've also made it easier and smoother for startup, so it look it does a new I/O prefetch thread, so it looks a lot smoother. So a, a variety of different things, and also if you're not aware, Enlightenment is kind of like an it's a very interesting window manager because it's not exactly a window manager and it's not exactly a desktop environment. It's like a hybrid of the two. It's like it's somewhere in between one of those. So it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of a desktop environment, but it has way more bells and whistles than a window manager. So it's, I guess it's a window environment. I don't think that's actually a term, but we're going to call it that because I'm just going to coin it that and say that's what it's called. It's a window environment, and it's a really interesting. They have a lot of cool features, and I know a few people who use it as their main environment. And uh, one of the reasons I had someone tell me that the reason they use it is because it has the ability to have different uh, workspaces independent on each monitor. So if you have multiple monitors, you can actually switch the workspace on one monitor and not on another monitor. And that is pretty interesting. There's a lot of district uh, DEs that can't do that. And there's, uh, there's some window managers that can, uh, but it's a really cool idea for uh, workflow. And, you know, if you are interested in, in that kind of thing, then check out Enlightenment 0.24. And hopefully soon, they'll just drop the zero point part. And uh, yeah, but you'll, you'll find a link to the latest release of Enlightenment in the show notes below. 
Up next in the show is Kali Linux 2020.2. So the latest release of Kali Linux has a lot of improvements and enhancements overall. So first of all, they've made a makeover of the login and just in general sense of KDE Plasma version of Kali Linux. So that's really cool. They've also added PowerShell by default. Kind of, sort of. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, they've actually done some improvements to Kali on ARM. They've also made some improvements to key packages and the icons for Kali Linux, as well as some behind-the-scenes stuff for improvements for the Kali Linux infrastructure. And I guess we should get back to the PowerShell thing right now, huh? So PowerShell is now a part, is included as a primary meta package. So Kali Linux Large is a meta package that you can use. And if you choose to install this meta package during the system setup, or you can install it later on once you've got it up and running, if you just run a command to install it from the apt repository, and you can do that and it'll give you the access to use PowerShell. So if you have compatibility with your architecture for PowerShell, you can just jump straight into it by using the command PWSH and there you go. So I think it makes sense for Kali Linux to wanna have PowerShell. So I think this is a pretty good idea. So for those who need to use penetration testing, there you go. So also there's been a lot of other news for like NetHunter. So if you're not familiar, NetHunter is a project by the Kali Linux team, which is a mobile operating, a mobile open source Android penetration testing platform. And some of the enhancement for this is Nexmon support has been revived, bringing Wi-Fi monitor support and frame injection to WLAN 0 on the Nexus 6P, Nexus 5, Sony Xperia Z5 Compact, and many more as well. Uh, the OnePlus 3T images have been added to the download page, and they've crossed 160 different kernels in their repository, allowing NetHunter to support over 64 devices. The documentation page has received a well-deserved refresh as well, especially the Linux kernel development section. So this is very cool. The Kali Linux is a distribution that is very awesome. It's been around for a long time, and it has a big name in the penetration testing thing. So I just want to say real quick, if you're not a penetration tester or a hacker or whatever, don't use Kali Linux as your distribution for your daily driver. I mean, even Kali Linux says don't necessarily do that. I mean, they make it possible to do that, but they do advise not to do it. So unless your job is to use, just do penetration testing, don't use it as your desktop, your daily desktop thing, because it just doesn't make sense. And they also don't want you to do that. So there you go. I just wanted to make that clear. If, if you are familiar with Kali Linux and you're watching this show in this segment because you've heard of Kali Linux and you've never seen this show before, it's not a good idea to use Kali Linux by default. I just wanted to get that out there because every time I talk about Kali Linux, I want to make sure that people are aware that while it is an awesome distribution and it has a lot of cool features, it's not a great daily driver. There you go. Anyway, let's move on to the next topic. So up next in the show is the latest release, 1.0.12 for Ventoy. So Ventoy allows you to make bootable USBs by just dropping the file on there. So the, the developer describes it as, Ventoy is an open source tool that creates bootable USB drives for ISO files with no extraction needed. That is a very interesting point. So they say that with Ventoy, you don't need to format the disk over and over. You just need to copy the ISO file to the USB drive and boot it from there. So it's even 
more crazy with the features that they claim you can have. You can have uh, they have new file system support for the latest release, saying that you have your your first partition can be NTFS, UDF, XFS, extended two, extended three, and extended four. They're also saying that it has support for legacy and UEFI boot and supports ISO files larger than four gigabytes. They also say that it's been tested by a lot of different operating systems, including over 200 ISO files. So that is very interesting. They've had so, because this has not even been around that long. It's been around for, I think, a few months now, and it's already got so much cool support and features. Very interesting project. And also the latest version of 1.0.12 has some other new features that are just really interesting. The ability to boot WIM files, which is Windows Imaging Format. So that is interesting. Uh, obviously, those are not going to be open source, so I don't, you know, we'll get to that in a second. But another feature that they say that's available in the 1.0.12 is updates to their persistence plugin stuff, which is really cool. So, you know, many distros provide ability to do persistence. If you're not aware what persistence is, it's the ability to save files on your running a live system, but you can save it on a different like a data file or a different partition or whatever, and allows you to have stored data on the drive without having to actually install the system overall. So what they're saying is not only do they have the ability to do this, they say that like in normal case, you would create a separate partition to do this for uh, part, persistence, but that's not very flexible. The new Ventoy releases a new feature you no longer need to create any partitions or persistent boot parameters. Just put a persistence data file in the first partition and tell Ventoy via a JSON configuration to use it, and that's it. They also say that you can put many different data files for different ISO files at once, and you can also share a data file between different ISO files, provided that the distro supports doing that. So that is is very interesting. So it's not only does it have the ability to not have to extract the files or the ISO files, it also has persistence options and the ability to have persistence for multiple ISOs. Looks awesome. Let's talk about some things that, because there were some interesting comments that I found on Reddit about this release. And for some reason, the thread about it was removed from the uh, and also i think it was deleted by the person who who uh, submitted it so i don't know but first it says uh some uh, frigid Knox from reddit says i just tried this and in exactly 11 minutes i was able to create a multi-bootable uh multi-boot bootable flash drive with ubuntu arch and stock windows iso and he says they all boot just fine yes including windows the setup they say the setup was luxuriously simple you don't extract the ISOs, you, or you don't do DD anything, you don't need to reformat your flash drive. Every time you need a different bootable device, you just drag and drop the ISOs onto it, and that's it. Which sounds awesome, like I already thought it would be. But then the follow-up, there was another comment from the uh, Happy Camp 2000 user from Reddit. He says that, Ventoid looks interesting, but on the open source part, I'm skeptical, because there are binary blobs... He says, I see 39 executables of unknown origin in the repository. What is the license on those, and how do we build them so we know they aren't Trojaned or whatever? Because of those things, I've been unwilling to install or use Ventoy. And there's been a lot of other comments really, very similar to this. I didn't want to you know, mention all of them, but mentioned uh, the fact that you can't find the source code for some of these blobs. They're kind of curious what those mean, and that's why they're not using it. But... 
it does look pretty awesome if it can do what they're claiming to do, and other people have tried it and saying it does. It does look awesome, but I, I hope that they can address this um, issue with the skeptics of saying that, you know, if you have the blobs on there, you need to let us know where the source code is. I know ex- I mean, there are some exceptions with like the Windows files, like the d- WIM files or WIM files. You're not going to be able to find binaries for those because they're stored on Windows structure. So those make sense. They're not going to be there. But the other ones, I don't know about this. So I'm not really a software auditor, so I don't know how to tell you whether or not this is usable or not. But it does look pretty awesome. So hopefully it ha- it will be audited by someone and they say that it's good to go because I do want to use it because it looks pretty cool with the, not only the features of being able to not have to extract the ISO, you could just drop the ISO on the, on the drive, but also the persistence thing, having the persistence be able to be different ISO files. So you have one drive that has persistence for multiple ISOs. That is awesome. So hopefully maybe somebody in the audience is, can audit the code and let us know. If not, hopefully in the future, we'll, I'll have an update to this pro this uh, topic and I'll let you know then either way, if you, if you are an auditor, Please check it out because I would like to know. Um, but yeah, it's there's there's that. If you want to try it out anyway, without you know, with that context knowing, feel free to do that. I just didn't want to say go try it, you know, and because recommend it because it does look awesome. But I don't want to recommend it without you know, with that little bit of a asterisk attached to it. So I just want to let you know, uh, put that out there, and uh, do as do with it as you will. Link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the housekeeping section, and first of all, we're going to talk about Destination Linux, which is the other podcast that I'm on, one of the other podcasts. I'm also on Hardware Addicts. You should check that out as well. Uh, But Destination Linux latest episode is 175. We had an interview with Marius and Dalton from UbiPorts about Ubuntu Touch, Lomiri, and Pinephones. You also might want to check out episode 174, where we we discussed finding a job in IT and Linux-related fields. We also introduced the new graphics for Destination Linux, which you'll see in the episode coming out ne- next as well, the 176, where I have some even new graphics and fancy OBS stuff on that episode as well. I'll have even more in the future because I'm kind of building out gradually, but it's going to be awesome. It's already pretty cool, but it's going to even be better later on. And check out episode 173, where we had an interview with Tamika Reed and Dee Parler from the organization Women in Linux, and it was a really interesting conversation, so check that out as well. I have a link to all of these in the show notes, but the quick link for all of the episodes for Destination Linux is destinationlinux.org. And if you appreciate this show, your weekly source for Linux news, then consider becoming a patron of Tux Digital. By becoming a patron, you are making this show possible. You are helping me directly finance the creation of this show and all the other content on this channel. There's going to be a lot more content in this week because I have a lot of stuff planned, including at least one extra video, maybe two. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. But if you'd like to help make this show possible and all the other content, then please become be, consider becoming a patron. You get Not only are you helping the show, you also get special rewards like joining me in the patrons live chat. Also, we're going to be doing some like gaming sessions and stuff like that, so you may be able to join me there. And also, you're going to be able to get access, early access to the videos that will be coming that are separate from this show. So if you want to get early access to that, you could become a patron for that. And I'd also like to just say, uh, I just want to thank the awesome 82 patrons of Tux Digital. I want to say, you know, thank you very much for helping me make this content possible. 
And I don't really have the ability to fully express how much I appreciate you making it possible for me to make this content. But uh, I'm going to continue to try to do that because it is very, very important to me that you know how much I appreciate your contribution to the show and the channel. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you again for helping me make it possible. So, yeah, let's get to the back to the show and cover some more Linux GNU's. Up next in the show is some great news related to legal news. And I never thought I would say that, but in this case, it's true. See what I did there? This case? Lawsuit? Cases? Anyway, the GNOME Foundation has announced that the the patent troll case that they had uh, has been resolved, and this is great. Now, there's uh, the way that this was solved, it was a settlement with a walkaway settlement. That's a type of settlement that essentially means that there's no money being traded hands, uh, and that's pretty much what it is. However, in addition to that, there's also a really cool thing that happened with this related to the open source development community, which we'll get to later in the topic. And there's also an asterisk with some nuance related to some issues that are not necessarily good, but we'll get to that later. So, first of all, for those who are not familiar with this topic, we covered it last year in October on this show, but we're going to do a brief rundown for the lead-up, and then we're going to get to the conclusion details and that kind of thing. So, first of all, in 2019, Gnome Foundation was sued by Rothschild Patent Imaging, or RPI. I know that Rothschild is not the correct pronunciation because I was told to and told about that in the last video. However, I chose not to care because it's a patent troll, in my opinion, and therefore I don't care. So, for violating its wireless image distribution system and method patent. So, ZDNet writes that Rothschild, a non-practicing entity, a.k.a. patent troll, in my opinion, had filed 714 lawsuits over the past six years. So, 714 lawsuits, not practicing law. Moving on. According to RPI's complaint, Gnome's Shotwell open source imager Let's let's do it in the nonsense lawyer talk, okay? So, Gnome's Shotwell Open Source Imager organ, Image Organizer had infringed the 2008 patent because it used an image capturing device to import and filter photographic images from cameras and then allow users to organize these photos and share them on social media. Generic nonsense for things people already doing, so it's not an invention if it already exists. So, you may be wondering, how did RPI get such a patent in the first place? Well, Alex Moss, he's a staff attorney for the intellectual property team at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or the EFF. He explains that the patent office simply failed to apply the Supreme Court's Alice decision. So the Alice decision is something that makes it clear that using generic computers to automate established human tasks cannot qualify as an invention worthy of patent protection. Because if it's something like moving photos and sharing photos, like it's just a generic pre-existing thing, so you can't call it as an invention. And I agree with that, and the Supreme Court agrees with that. Apparently, the patent office didn't get the memo because they gave it to them anyway. So... The Gnomes Foundation said that RPI offered to let them settle this case with a high five-figure amount, and they said, no, that would be wrong to do, so instead they decided to countersue the RPI. Fortunately for Gnome, 
They had friends in both, or actually in multiple, the OIN or the Open Invention Network. The Linux community also came out and gave, uh, you know, funded some uh, a fundraiser to of the up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I think, and this is great. Uh, but also another thing came to their aid, which was the law firm of Sherman and Sterling, because they decided to represent Gnome Pro Bono, which is awesome of them. So, uh, Keith Bergelt, sorry, I probably butchered that name. Uh, OIN's CEO, he announced that OIN would seek prior art that can be used to show that RPI's patent should be ruled invalid. He says that Rothschild is a bad company. This is an entity that's antithetical to the goals of innovation. It will sue foundations, sue not-for-profits, sue individuals, and it will sue corporations. Their, their, their playbook is established a pattern of wins that through relatively modest settlements, which can then be used against other businesses to get them to pay up without a fight. So this is essentially a patent troll, in my opinion. According to Neil McGovern, he's the executive director of the Foundation for Gnome. This is, he says that they managed to raise over $150,000 from over 4,000 individual donors to fight the case. One of the strengths of the community is how passionately we care about what we do and how we rally around each other when there's trouble. So I agree with that completely. It is awesome that the community decided to you know, rally behind Gnome and make sure that this patent troll was punished for deciding to sue an open source project and also for having such a ridiculous patent in the first place. So that is awesome. But here's the, where the conclusion comes in. So the conclusion is on May 20th, 2020, the patent dispute between Rothschild Patent Imaging, again, don't care if I said it wrong, and GNOME, has, or GNOME for those who care about that part, has been settled. And the GNOME makers, the Linux desktop environment, for those who are not aware, of course you are, uh, they won not only a release and covenant not to be sued by uh, Rothschild for any of their patents, but also they got a release and covenant to for any software that is released under an existing open source initiative approved license or OSI. So if you are a developer in any case for that use open source software or you develop open source software and you use a license that is recognized or approved by the OSI, then you are also uh, benefiting from this lawsuit settlement, which is very, very cool. So that is an awesome addition that they were doing, and I love the fact that they added that in the settlement agreement because, uh, you know, that's just great. So for, for now, RPI gets to hold onto their patent, though, but no company or group creating open source software needs to worry about seeing any RPI litigators at their door. So there's an asterisk there because they still get to hold the patent. So there's two asterisks on this particular topic, and one of those is that, and we'll get to that in a second. In the final statements related to this case, Neil McGovern, executive director of the Gnome Foundation, said, I'm exceptionally pleased that we have concluded this case. This will allow us to refocus our attention on creating free software desktop and will ensure certainty for all free and open source software in the future. And the face with the opposition and the possibility of losing their patents, RPI backed off, making the best of it, making the best of it. The managing member of Rothschild Trust Holdings said, I'm pleased that we have managed to settle this issue amicably. I have always supported the innovation of open source software and its developers and encourages innovation and adoption, which is not something you expect from a patent troll who is suing them 
for doing it in the first place. <gasps> Wait, that sounds like a complete contradiction nonsense, right? Because it is. You're patent trolls, in my opinion. So two things. This is all awesome. Just to be clear, it's all awesome. There's two things that I wanted to address that's a little bit of a nuanced thing that might be kind of not addressed by other people talking about this topic. So, first of all, the fact that they did a settlement means that while, yes, it is awesome that the, that the open source community are going to get Rothschild to agree to not sue them through this covenant, that is fantastic. However, they still can sue other companies and other individuals who are not doing open source software. So it doesn't actually solve the problem of them being awful. It just means they're not going to be awful to a certain group of people. That is like great with an asterisk. So I would rather them have fought them to through court and just get them to get their patent been thrown invalid and therefore they don't have the patent to sue anyone. That would have been better, but this is still awesome in general. So I wanted to clarify that piece. Another piece that kind of rubs me, rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Now, I'm not saying this is negative, that they're doing this on purpose or whatever, but I want them to. I want the GNOME Foundation to be more clear about how the $150,000 that was raised by the f over 4,000 individual donors was used. Because, well, if you didn't notice earlier, I said that the Sher Sherman and Sterling or a law firm agreed to represent Gnome Foundation pro bono. Pro bono means for free. Therefore, the $150,000 was not used in the attorney fees, and I don't think the court costs would be that high. So, and maybe you'd even get the court cost to be covered by the Rothschild awful patent troll, in my opinion. I don't know how that was handled, but... It just seems odd that they mentioned that there was $150,000 raised, but they don't say what it was raised for. And I know that the they, that they say anything left over would be used to help improve and develop GNOME, which is cool if there was something left over. But to me, it feels like this money was raised for the particular purpose of battling this you know, horrible patent troll to get them to lose their patent and they didn't lose their patent. So I don't know. I'm just, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but so like it's 98% awesome with a couple of asterisks attached to it. So, um, you know, there's that. I still think it's fantastic that this, this news is overall, but I would like some more information about that $150,000 and also, I kind of wish that they would have gone farther in and just, you know, obliterated the patent entirely. I know that that would probably not be worth the hassle because, you know, lawsuits take years in most cases. So I get why they would do that. But anyway, there you go. That's 98% awesome news. And if you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some great news from EA. Well, there's also a percentage where it's not as great yet, but it will be supposedly, so we'll get to that in a second. But Jim Vasella from EA says that we are proud to announce that alongside the launch of Remaster Collection, Electronic Arts will be releasing TiberianDawn.dll and RedAlert.dll and their corresponding source code under the GPL version 3 license. 
This is a key moment for Electronic Arts, the CNC community, and the gaming industry as we believe this will be one of the first major RTS franchises to open source their source code under the GPL. It's worth noting this initiative is a direct result of collaboration between some of the council members and the community council members and our teams at EA. After discussing with the council members, we made the decision to go with the GPL license to ensure compatibility with projects like CNCNet and OpenRA. Our goal was to deliver the source code in a way that would be truly beneficial from the community, and we hope this will be an, this will enable amazing community projects for years to come. Hopefully the way I said that is a clarification of how, if it's a quote or not. I'm working on like, let me know if what you think, if that was like clear enough that this was a quote, because that whole thing that I was saying it like that, that's a quote from Jim Fasella of EA. So let me know what you think, if that's clear, or I'll work on it more later in the future. Anyway, so this also makes it possible to have mod support. And they even say that the Steam Workshop will be used for communities so that you can create maps and mods both for Origin and Steam, will have the game uh, in-game options for mod players. You'll be able to subscribe to maps directly in the community hub, and that's very cool. Now, they did say that land play is not available in this version, but it is a priority, and they will be using it, or including it in a future update. So that's pretty cool. Jacob from the DLN Discord says, though, reading the EA.com post, it seems like they are just open sourcing redalert.dll which i assume does not include the missions but i do like that they are see they that they assume they seem to be actually understanding the community and specifically mentions openra and cnc net as well as the importance of land play and how to share maps and mods so slight asterisks of stuff that's not available yet but is coming which is really cool and maybe we don't know about the missions yet but probably not because they might want to do like the custom missions or something like that. I don't know. We'll see what happens there. I don't know much about the uh, OpenRA or the CNC community that well to give a, a opinion of this overall, but it's really awesome that they are doing open sourcing stuff. In contrast to what they were doing where the EA was banning people for in Battlefield 5 for using Linux because they considered DXVK as cheating, whatever. So just a little note right there is like there is still some issues with EA. I mean, there's a lot of issues with EA overall, but I'm really happy to see that they're doing this because it is definitely a step in the right direction. So if you'd like to learn more about this release, I'll have a link in the show notes for the announcement from EA. And there you go. Up next in the show is some Microsoft related news. And that is that they say the DirectX hearts Linux. Which is great. No, it's a, there's there's a catch. Obviously, it's Microsoft, so not really true. So we're going to talk about that as well as now that there are Linux apps be, being usable on WSL. So originally, when WSL was coming out, there was a lot of people who were proponents about like it's not really for users; it's for developers. So like apps, the GUI apps don't work. But of course, it's Microsoft, so their entire intent is to gradually you know, add stuff to the, make the thing that they're, you know, they have this whole embrace, extend, extinguish philosophy for many years ago. And people have said that that's a, it's a whole new company. They're not like that anymore. This sounds a lot like that though, because they've embraced it and they're now extending it, but also they're only extending it for their benefit. So <laughs> take that as you will. So 
It's currently only available to use console apps in WSL, but WSL 2 will now let developers, you know, they say developers, run Linux GUI applications on Windows without third-party X server. So that's not that good. But next up, DirectX on WSL. So DirectX Heart Linux, eh, not really. So at Build 2020, Microsoft announced that the GPU hardware acceleration is coming to WSL 2. WSL 2 will use a custom DirectX-based Linux GPU kernel driver called DXG Kernel, K-R-N-L, but we're going to just call it DXG Kernel, which creates a path to supported GPU hardware, basically a virtualized GPU driver that only works on Microsoft's Hyper-V. So this is aimed at developers, they say, for testing workloads that will be deployed in the cloud inside Linux containers. So it's this brings Direct3D12 to Linux WSL2 in the context of allowing GUI applications and GPU compute within the Windows subsystem for Linux, not actually for Linux. So well, before we get to that part, Steve Pronovost, he's a Microsoft partner developer lead, and he says that Applications running inside the Linux environment have the same access to the GPU as native applications on Windows. There are basically no differences between the two application, Windows applications sharing a GPU versus a Linux and a Windows application sharing the same GPU. If a Linux application is alone on the GPU, it can consume all of its resources. The company said also that it's working on getting the Linux driver upstream to the Linux kernel and has open-sourced the driver, asterisk, and they and Pronovost says that this is the real full direct or D3 D12 API. No imitations, no pretender or re-implementation here. This is the real deal. We'll get back to that in a second. He also says that libd3d12.so is compiled from the same source code as d3d12.dll. We'll just have to take their word for it because, you know, on Windows, but for a Linux target. It offers the same level of functionality and performance, minus virtualization overhead. So, in response to this stuff, we've got a lot of different people. we got a kernel developer from uh, Intel. We've got some people from uh, the, the kernel developer who's the developer for the maintainer for the graphics stack in Linux kernel, uh, Dave Arley. I think I said your name correctly. If I did not, I apologize profusely. But... Uh, he says that this is a driver that connects a binary blob interface in the Windows kernel drivers to a binary blob that you run inside a Linux guest. It's a binary transport between two binary pieces. Personally, he says, this holds little of interest to me. I can see why it might be nice to have this upstream, but I don't foresee any other Linux distributor ever enabling it or having to ship it. It's purely a WSL2 pipe. I'm not saying I'd be happy to see this in the tree, but I, since I don't see the value of maintaining it upstream, but it probably should just exist in the driver's Hyper-V type area. He also summarizes this on his blog saying that the DX on Linux is a WSL2 only thing. Microsoft are not in any way bringing DX12 to Linux outside of the Windows environment. They are also in no way open sourcing any of the DX12 driver code. They are recompiling the DX12 user space drivers from GPU vendors into Linux shared libraries and running them on a kernel driver shim that transfers the kernel interface up to the closed source Windows kernel driver. This is no way useful for having DX12 on Linux bare metal, 
or anywhere other than in the WSL2 environment. It is not useful for Linux gaming. And this is the words, again, from Dave Arley, the Linux kernel graphics maintainer. So we also got some more information about this. Pharonix notes that it's already facing resistance and will be an uphill battle for it to be mainlined into the kernel. The problem is DXG kernel sits between Microsoft's to-be-published proprietary Direct3D 12 libraries that sit in Linux user space and the host system that will receive the instructions. And DX kernel, DXG kernel communicates with the host system via Microsoft Hyper-V. So, with Microsoft keeping their Direct3D 12 Linux libraries closed source, that's created some friction naturally. There's actually uh, some interesting things from the Intel open source developer Daniel Vetter, who helps oversee the DRM subsystem or the uh, Direct Rendering Manager subsystem. He says he uh, immediately he pointed out that there's a number of problems, including the closed source user space. Among the issues raised by Vetter is that the current the DirectX kernel driver is reinventing the world and changing around device enumeration and a lot of other interface features already supported in common manner by upstream DRM drivers. There are also questions raised about how well this integrates with other common Linux features like DMA-BUF. And from the DRM perspective, they you know they don't normally allow drivers and features into the kernel that are contingent exclusively on a proprietary closed uh, proprietary client in user space, which this does do. So if they're trying to play nicely with the upstream DRM, that immediately causes problems because with the Direct 3D 12 user space libraries not being open source, they're definitely not playing nicely. So this is not remotely what they're pretending it to be. And it also makes me think, hey, maybe it's not the real deal. <laughs> Arlie, as we mentioned earlier, he also says uh, in a follow-up kind of, he says, he's not even fond of the idea of reviewing this open source DXG kernel code as since it's implementing proprietary Microsoft interfaces, it could potentially legally taint him in developing new graphics interfaces. Basically, it would be giving Microsoft a, a, some little bit of a leverage in a copyright claim of his work if it looked similar to theirs because he's reviewing their code. So he isn't really comfortable in doing that either because it potentially has more problems than it helps. So essentially, Microsoft loved Linux so much they made DirectX run on Windows because this is essentially what it is. It's not running on Linux because it's running on Linux through Windows. So yay, DirectX still on Windows. Good job, Microsoft. They, they, they love Linux when it benefits them and only when it benefits them. That's what I'm saying here. Up next in the show is a topic about Microsoft, again, that is not ideal, and that is Microsoft is having a name collision with MauiKit. So first of all, MauiKit is a as an acronym, MAUI is an acronym for Multi-Adaptable User Interfaces. This is an open source framework for developing cross-platform applications made by the Nitrix team. And this is current, it's been in development since 2018 and is currently now a part of the KDE's incubation program, KDE Invent. Microsoft has recently decided to rename one of its projects, Zamarin.forms, to .NET MAUI. This MAUI and .NET MAUI stands for Multi-Platform App UI. It's also a framework for building cross-platform applications. So 
you can see where the problem here is both MAUI projects are frameworks for building cross-platform applications. So MAUI Kit responded to this being done with this statement. We would like to believe that this is an unfortunate event caused by an oversight during the brainstorming session to select a new and appealing name for their product, and not an attempt at using the branding and marketing might consist of a large corporation such as Microsoft and their subsidiary Zamarin to step over a competing framework, a UI framework that as of today is still the first result in Google when searching for the term Maui UI framework. But that due to the might of GitHub and Microsoft's own website, the SEO change might change over time. We would like to kindly ask Microsoft team that it is that is in charge of this development of the software to reconsider changing to a different name if they were so inclined to use another Pacific Island. There are plenty to choose from, many of which the probability that another island is also named after a free and open source project is substantially minimal. So that's a nice response and a very professional response. Later on, there's some professional responses that are, or, or some responses that are not professional at all, even though they're, we'll get to that. So anyway, so there was a bunch of issues created on their GitHub, including one from Yuri Herrera. He's the guy from Nitrix and the developer of Maui Kit. And there's also one which we're showing an article written by Pro Bono, which is the developer of AppImage. He also created a thread on this uh, GitHub issue for this discussion. And this was closed. And we'll we'll talk about, like, both, both of them were closed, but I only saw some of the details on this particular thread. And thanks to the uh, Pro Bono for making this uh, post on Medium, we got to see a lot more content that was hidden by the employees at Microsoft. So we'll get to that in a second too. Anyway, so since there were a couple of issues opened on GitHub, it, they were they definitely know that this is an issue now, but here's one of the responses from a Microsoft MVP. Now, just a quick note, an MVP, it means most valuable professional, but this is not a Microsoft employee. So the MVP says, oh, by the way, pr most, prof most valuable professional with some not very professional statements. He says, Perhaps the Linux project should change its name as they conflicted with a city in Hawaii which assist existed long before. Oh, hey, a city, a framework. <laughs> There's a conflict there, but a framework and a framework that does the exact same thing, basically. That's the problem here. No one is going to confuse the city with the framework. They might confuse a framework with a framework. Anyway, he also says... Look again, the name isn't MAUI. The name is Multi-Platform app, uh, app UI, which abbreviates to MAUI. Well, also, the, uh, the MAUI Kits is an abbreviation to MAUI too. So, great. What's your point? This the conversation kept going farther, and it did not it put a very good light on this particular MVP. I'm not going to go into the details of the person's name. You can look it for yourself if you want to, because it is there. But anyway, a Microsoft employee has answered uh, the Microsoft employee program. He's Microsoft program manager, David Ortino. Ortino? Probably wrong. Close the thread with the message. Hi, all. The official legal name is .NET Multi-Platform App UI, and MAUI is an acronym code name. This has been through legal review. I don't believe this is the forum for this discussion. If there are ongoing concerns, please email me and we can, we can loop in the appropriate teams. And he does provide his email address. Now, 
that might seem like a good thing to do, but it seems more like a de-escalation technique because what they're doing is taking the discussion out of the public view and to a private view where they can pretend that they care, but not actually care. Because if they were willing to legitimately do it publicly, that would have shown that they actually cared. But of course, that's not what's happening. They decided to lock the thread. Now you could say, well, the other thread was like, they could be locking this as a duplicate they also locked the original thread too. It's still open, but it's locked. So it doesn't matter. But there's an interesting point here. He says that it's been through legal review and there doesn't seem to be a problem. But the interesting part is that Maui has had a registered trademark by a key KDE sponsor in the European Union since 2015. So they didn't do much effort in doing the review for whether that has a conflict or not. So it doesn't look like Microsoft is going to backtrack on the name, uh, but it is kind of an issue considering they're using a trademark that they don't have the rights to use. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing exactly. I just know that it is definitely a problem, and it's apparently not something they care about because they did legal review and didn't find the trademark somehow, even though it's a European Union trademark. And it's not like it's for, you know, multi-app, you know, the, the the whole actual definition of Maui from Maui Kit. It's not the multi-adaptable user interfaces that's trademarked. It's the, the styling of Maui is being trademarked. And they are using the styling of Maui with capital letters, which is the trademark, for their thing. So them saying, it, well, that's not the name because the name is this. We just happen to be using the Maui part in all of our promotional stuff on social media and, and all of our stuff on the GitHub, in fact, because it's .NET slash Maui. So, like, I mean, it's not like we're doing that on purpose. You, you can decide for yourself whether or not they are violating a trademark. I think they are. But I'm not a lawyer, so what do I know, I guess? Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You're going to learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to destinationlinux.network slash store and clicking on the Linux is Everywhere shirt. Or you can use the drop down and click on Tux Digital or This Week in Linux and you'll find the Linux, the Linux is Everywhere shirt there as well. Now, this is actually also really cool because there's a lot of other great content or swag, merch, whatever the phrase is, you know, or term, whatever, in the DLN store, like the new DLN logo shirt, as well as a new stool-related shirt from promoting active sitting. Now, if you're not sure what that's referring to, check out episode 152 of Destination Linux, and really any episode after that, because they gave me a hard time about getting this stool back here. So, yeah, if you want to learn more about what that means, check out episode 152 of Destination Linux by going to destinationlinux.org slash stool. Yep. I did that. So if you'd like to contribute without any cost to you, you can do that as well by using the affiliate links. So you can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. 
And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. In the housekeeping section, we talk about 173, 174, and 175. But again, if you'd like to check out the stool weirdness, there's a crazy episode in 170 or 152, like I said, by going to destinationlinux.org slash stool. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you back here next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>